Adsys Brace Yourself podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Christina Adler to discuss the causative and correlative relationship of early environments to the oral microbiotic ecosystem and the links to states of health and disease. This research is highly relevant to clinical practice, so stay tuned. As a dentist, you want to come into surgery just for the treatment and not have to worry about the infection control behind the scenes. When you hear your dental practice is getting audited for infection control, you look around your practice and think, would your practice pass as an audit? Single-use dental instruments is the solution to all your problems. Each time you open a pack of single-use dental instruments, your patient is getting a sterile set of new instruments that haven't been used in someone else. Plus, you get that brand new instrument feeling. Single-use dental instruments have focused on making quality, sharp metal instruments eliminating the wear and tear that you would face with reusable instruments. The single-use vision is to create a sustainable single-use instrument solution for dental clinics globally. The first step towards this is being able to dispose of the waste and minimise the environmental impact. The Smart Waste Program is a method of waste management that prevents 90% entering landfill, instead turning it into an energy source. So, make dental life easier, get started on your journey of single-use dental instruments. Visit www.singleusedentalinstruments.com for more information today. Welcome back to another episode of ATSA Brace Yourself podcast series. We are Evelyn and Ian, fourth-year dental students at the University of Queensland. In today's episode, we will be discussing about the research paper published by Dr. Christina Adler. Dr. Adler completed her undergraduate degree at the University of Sydney with a Bachelor of Science and received a PhD at the University of Adelaide, where she won the doctoral research medal. At the moment, Dr. Adler is a senior lecturer in the School of Dentistry in the University of Sydney. She is also an academic whose work focuses on how the oral microbiome evolves from a state of health into an existing state of highly prevalent chronic infection and disease. Today's paper is about how early environment influence can influence the oral microbiome and determine oral health outcomes in childhood. Let's welcome Dr. Christina Adler. Hello, it's nice to meet you. Hi. So apart from our brief introduction, can you please tell us more about yourself? Um, well, I guess, as you said, I've been researching in this area for a little while. So in the oral microbiome field, I guess I kind of fell into it, like as in I um, actually started my work more in evolution. So I looked at ancient DNA in dental calculus and how it evolved over time. And so that got me really interested in the oral microbiome because I realized, oh, you know, basically our past ancestors had really good oral health and really good oral microbiomes and we don't. So I'm really interested in figuring out, well, how do we go from there to now? And so now I'm sort of interested in teasing out what's going on now too. And I guess when I'm not researching and teaching and stuff, I've got two little kids. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of busy, I guess. <laughs> That's actually so interesting to hear and how now you like work on our current oral microbiome. So yeah, so I still do ancient stuff, like as really? in, but yeah, like as in, so I guess they go side by side to me. So they're all, you know, 
what you are now is part of what you were in the past. You know what I mean? Like as in so we didn't suddenly pop up. You know, it's all a big evolutionary path. But to figure out today there's certain questions we can't go and look at skeletal remains and we have to look at modern people. And so that's why, yeah, we sort of have both kinds of studies running side by side. That's actually so good to hear. So to get into our first question, we have uh, a question about the main toxic metal exposure, because as in the paper, you mentioned that these toxic metals can affect the oral microbiome. So what do you think is the main toxic metal exposure and like how does it influence microbiome and like how would you limit its exposure? Sure. So, so um, I guess there's very, very little known about how like the wealth of different enviro exposures that we have actually influence the microbiome and like I'm talking about oral or gut there's even less known though about oral so always with everything gut knows a bit more and then oral always knows a little bit less there's just less number of researchers sort of in the area so we're always a little bit behind gut however like as in there has been some recent work and I guess also to preface that is that it's not saying there isn't some info known but it's usually on specific bacteria but if we want to look at all the bugs which is what a microbiome approach is then there's only a few studies that have really found some things and they're sort of, I'm talking about like last two years type thing. So like in 2020, there was a paper in the scientific reports and that was looking at the salivary microbiome and looking at sort of essential metals and toxic metals. And they found in that that, you know, look, it's quite, there's an impact of basically toxic metals like arsenic and mercury, so things we know are not good for us. And basically they were impacting on the abundance of certain bacteria. So in people who had high levels of mercury, they tended to also have high levels of strep, low levels of Neisseria, and arsenic also had some differing effects. So there's, as I mentioned, sort of really, and that's where they take saliva, but we kind of don't have a lot of info about these exposures. And one thing we're doing at the moment is um, I have some colleagues in the state. So they used to be at Sydney Uni and now they're over in Mount Sinai in the US. And so we've got a grant at the moment where instead of looking at what exposures get trapped in the saliva we're using baby teeth to do it so basically my colleague Christine is a chemist and so she's worked out a way of so the tooth is like a a tree like as in so basically it lays down layer on layer until you know as you're developing and so it kind of records from second trimester exposures and so every time it lays down we can get a weekly measure of what you're exposed to in the womb and then what you're exposed to for the first year of life and so basically she can measure things like you know essential metals toxic metals and um, then we can connect that with we have microbiome samples from when the children are born so that way we can start to unpack sort of really directly like not sort of saliva where it might be not super direct you know sort of thing about what's being exposed like these are things that definitely got exposed and got trapped in the tooth <laughs> like as in and then we can like have a look at lead and different things like that that we sort of know are associated with certain dental diseases but we don't really know how that affects the microbiome yet so we've just started that grant and um yeah we'll see how it kind of turns out about what metals end up being really important um but yeah it's a different way of looking at it kind of things so track sort of again tracking backwards in somebody's history to look at them what they happen in sort of early childhood it's such an exciting field and it's good to know that there'll be like more research coming along the way so like in the future i guess 
will like learn more and know more and yeah yeah like it's in and it's it's trying to sort of get predictions so it's sort of saying like you know that really early lifetime like as in that we sort of know is really important trying to figure out well what is it when is it really important like what are you exposed to you know even before you're born what are you exposed to in that you know little bit just after you're born and also to because we've um, luckily in our study so as I mentioned they're baby teeth so these are exfoliated teeth that we've collected from these it's a twin cohort and basically we've been following them for about 10 years so we can now look you know we had their baby teeth then like as in but we can look back but we then also have later samples so yeah there might have been an impact early but did it last as well you know what I mean so do those metal exposures for example have a longitudinal effect as well so that's also important to kind of thing yeah um dr christina uh, that was a really very interesting uh research i i personally actually have a very similar ongoing research myself like undergrad level we have a very similar one but i was just uh, ask that question a bit later um just regarding to the research, uh, you're talking about like newborn baby. So in general, is there any advice that you can give to a pregnant woman or parents with a newborn children? I can. So I guess, um, first of all, I probably wouldn't, I wouldn't personally give any advice. I'm not a clinician. But um, in terms of things that I maybe would say to somebody, you know, maybe to consider is that, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that um, the microbiome you get and um, how what seeds onto your teeth and in your mouth, some of it is under host genetic control. So some of it, you know, you really can't control. It's already predetermined about the shape of your teeth, what bugs are going to be. You know, some people are just going to be more likely to have certain bugs stick to them just because of anatomical shape. You have taste preference genes. You have all these things that already set you up with an ability to have a certain microbiome. However, somebody who has just had a baby or is about to have a baby, the larger component is obviously environment, which they can do something about. So I guess by prefacing it by saying host genetics has a role is just to say that, it's you know, you may do everything right, but you still have a chance of, you know, having a microbiome mm-hmm. that's going to have, for example, be more likely to develop saying kids, dental caries, you know? Mm. So, like, it's not all your fault. You know what I mean? Like, it's in, like, yeah. in the sense of, you know, what it's you're doing. There's a lot of factors about. affecting that. There's a lot of factors. So, yeah. but the things they can think about is that, first of all, what is going to seed that baby? So, the baby is going to come out and they don't have any microbiome. Like, it's mm. in, so they're going to be coming out completely naive and their first point of contact is mum. So, mum is going to mm. have a big impact whether that be mm. mode of delivery, whether that be what they're feeding them, but also too, so there's that they can think about, look, I'm the kind of transmission site, you know, like mm-hmm. so I want to get my bugs in order. I want to get my oral health as good as possible because I want the potential of transmission to be things that are going to promote good oral health. The other side of it too, though, is that say, you know, maybe it wasn't possible for them to have good oral health maybe they had the type of pregnancy where they were much more prone to perio and so then they had perio did uh, bugs you know maybe they had mm-hmm. gestational diabetes maybe they had other things that they couldn't control however though once the baby is born you can still influence that environment to select for the type of bacteria that are going to promote good oral health so we're going to try and go away from you know acidogenic mm-hmm. something damages yeah yeah like and so we want to say look you know promoting you know fluoride exposure to that child when mm-hmm. they can have toothpaste mm-hmm. promoting you know um uh you know reduction in density of the plaque through early toothbrushing so 
there's many things that that parent can do either before the baby's born and if they can't do that then post the baby's born to kind of modify that environmental side to select Mm. for those health associated bacteria Mm. so there's a range of things somebody can do Mm. Uh, probably just a follow-up question what a probiotic actually be beneficial? Um, so I guess probiotics are like a really, really interesting topic. So I guess first of all, we should say, well, what is a probiotic? Like as in so that we're all sort mm. of clear. Like as in is that, you know, a probiotic is a live microorganism. So if we go with the World Health Organization definition, which is the one I always talk about with students in our classes, like as in is that it's supposed to provide a beneficial effect. And obviously not all probiotics are to that level. You know what I mean? Like in the sense of what ones you can access. However, they're definitely something that is supposed to help restore dysbiosis in a microbial ecosystem. So basically what we're saying here is something's gone out of whack and we want to get it back to homeostasis. And basically a lot of dental diseases are dysbiotic diseases, so mm-hmm. caries, perio. Like as in, but if we just stick with caries for kids, like you asked me about children, like as in um, the more likely one to be happening, then, yes, you can see why probiotics have become like an interesting factor like in researching caries and kids because it's like well you know they're supposed to help restore homeostasis this mm-hmm. should work and there's been a range of studies looking at it like as in I did um a review for the ADA a few years ago on this and um basically there was some really strong evidence to indicate you know probiotics can work and particularly there was one study by this guy Stenson and in Kerry's research and he basically they gave was a randomized control trial and they gave probiotics for the first year of life and then they followed the children up nine years later to see well what was their Kerry's experience and it was really interesting the group that had the probiotics they were like 82% caries free, whereas the placebo group were like 50 something, 58 or something like that percent caries free. So quite a big difference. Mm. However, on the other side, there's many other studies showing probiotics had been. It's not going to work. <laughs> like, as in, so the other, and the key point I would make there is while what I'm talking about when I compare those is all RCT. So randomized control trials mm. to randomized control trials. So I'm trying to compare apples and apples. But what you can't compare is that all the studies basically use different strains of probiotics. They usually always use a gut origin probiotic. Like, so these are probiotics that normally, like, live in your gut. You know what I mean? Like, they're not things that are made for the oral cavity. And we have very few probiotics that are actually designed that are from the oral cavity that would just, would help restore homeostasis in the oral cavity. So I would say, I guess as a summary of that, is that, Look, probiotics, probiotics do provide like this real potential to mm-hmm. help in homeostasis and help restore mm-hmm. or help prevent caries development in an early child. You can totally see why they'd work, but I don't think we're there yet in terms of what probiotics are available. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they won't be, and that's something with our research is we're really interested in those kids who always had good oral health and the oral microbiome indicates this. We want to really like mine their data and say, well, is there strains in there that would make a good probiotic? But why don't we make them from the oral cavity, not keep adopting gut bacteria, if that makes sense? So I'd say at the moment the field's not there yet, but it's totally something that is interesting. That we can research should, on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But also kind of should work. It's It yeah. seems like it should work, you know, like, mm-hmm. but we'll see. yeah. Yeah. Sounds very interesting. Yeah. Because um, definitely uh, in our undergrad level, um, people have been talking about probiotics, like even in lecture, and no one can actually draw a conclusion. Like people are yeah. still kind of like 50-50 on their opinion in general. Yeah. So yeah, 
Yeah, and it seems to be the case, like, if we don't talk about newborns, but you talk about, mm. like... No, adults. Yeah, like, you talk about perio is a bit stronger for probiotics and also ulcers, like, as in mm. there's quite a bit of evidence of using a probiotic as an adjunct to steroid therapy to help restore the microbiome with ulcer, uh, mouth ulcers I'm talking about is, um, you know, they also seem to have been positive with a few Cochrane reviews. So, yeah, they seem to be popping up in a whole lot of oral diseases, like, it's in, um, but, yeah, it's sort of not quite there as being, like, yet yeah, we're... We're definitively going with it yet. Oh, yeah. The next question is about streptococcus mutants. So as in your paper mentioned that streptococcus, mut- streptococcus mutants was associated with caries in saliva. It wasn't really found, like there wasn't a strong association found in bowel film. And as you know, caries is a bowel film mediated, mediated disease. We should use the evidence from bowel film. However, why do you think streptococcus, streptococcus mutants is still like the the micro uh, sorry the microorganism believed to cause caries like in mainstream research a lot of research seems to say that and do you think that will change um yeah and I think it is changing like as in I think that you know um I think sort of I think it's really hard when you have something really embedded which has had a lot of evidence for it then it takes a long time for something like that to shift so I think we now have pretty convincing evidence that it isn't just streptococcus mutans. So that was really based on like culture-based work. So when you grow mm-hmm. up with a bacteria or like more single species approaches. And so um, when we use those sort of more traditional microbiological approaches, uh, there was a huge amount of evidence indicating strep mutans was the chief pathogen. And so no wonder we came up with theories that this was, you know, single-mediated um, bacterial disease and that then, you know, much research from there went, you know, like trying to develop vaccines against this bug, everything. So, you know, people have a huge amount also invested in continuing to target this bacteria too. And that's not to say that it now has been found that strep mutans isn't really important it still is really important and it's you know caries is not a binary disease it's a spectrum disease so it's really important in that initiation and when we do these widespread genomic approaches that allow us to look at all the different bacteria we see yes it is there in those early parts of disease it just might not be there later on you know what I mean like as in mm-hmm. so we're not getting it there in dentine you know like as in so it's just it's different it's superficial on yeah, like yeah. so it's different depending on what stage of the disease you're up to. And I do think as a reflection of like, you know, I think most people now are aware of the what's called the ecological park hypothesis that, you know, mm-hmm. a range of different bugs are involved in caries. And I think that is probably widely accepted within research. And also too, I think that that's changed now how we teach caries. Like we talk about all the different hypotheses. And also too is that it's changing in, I'd say, particularly the recent grads, you know, that I see. Like so, for example, um, I take part in the primary examinations for microbiology and like you know, really the recent grads are very on top of that, like as in, and they're not explaining caries as a single mediated disease like strep mutants anymore. They definitely describe it as a polymicrobial disease involving a range of taxa. So I definitely think it's changing, but I don't think it's a surprise that it takes a long time to change either because the strep mutant story was so convincing. There was heaps mm-hmm. of evidence and strep mutans has all these properties that make sense for it to be in caries. Like it's sticky, it's acidogenic, it's acidogenic, you know, like it has all these things that should work, you know what I mean? And so it does, it's just not the whole picture, that's all. Thank you. I think I do remember in first year or like second year where we learned like all the properties of streptococcus mutants. And yeah, so that was like very interesting to hear you say that. Yeah. We have a follow-up question. It's about like, how do you think is the best way to collect 
a sample of biofilm? Sure. So I think it really depends on what you want to do. So like if you want to study caries and particularly say childhood caries, then you'd be looking at supergingival plaque. If you want to look at perio, then you look mm. at subgingival plaque. Um, but say you were interested in, you know, um, a systemic disease and you were interested in well, what is the relationship, say, between oral microbiome and, say, a general inflammatory condition, then maybe you would want to be taking a salivary sample instead. So it just depends what your question is to research it. And that's not to say that people who, you know, sometimes it's difficult, you know, usually if you do need to get a super or subgingival sample, you offer, you need a clinician there to, to be doing this. And so that does make taking a sample more difficult. You know, if you want to do home collection, sometimes saliva is the only thing you're going to be able to get. And that still is going to give you an indication of what's going on in different oral diseases. You just got to think of it as being a slight step removed because obviously it isn't biofilm. And so it's going to be difficult to make really direct relationships to biofilm related diseases so that's why we might see differences in findings based on studies that are in saliva versus ones that are in biofilm and the other thing too is a lot of our studies to get enough dna we need to take biofilm from lots of teeth and some of those teeth will have a carious lesions and some won't so again we're sort of mixing up the results there a little bit too so i guess it depends how specific you want to be and what exactly your question is um so how can we decide on a study that looking for association between the gut and the oral microbiome? Uh, uh, sorry, uh, oral microbiome dysbiosis for a prenatal period. Okay. So the association, yeah. So with that one, are you meaning like you're wanting to look at, because um, are you wanting to have, so you're saying prenatally, so you're wanting to know mums, like as in mm-hmm. um, looking at her oral gut. Is that the case? Yeah. As in, yeah. yeah. Like as in, so basically um, that isn't, it is something that surprisingly, you know, few people have got oral and gut studies going together. Mm-hmm. And um, it's something that, you know, it should be something we do more frequently, you know, like as in because like we have some mice studies where we look at that, like as in, but for some reason it seems to be we still keep separate, like as in uh, um, looking at the two. And really when you talk about the gastrointestinal tract, they're one and the same tube, <laughs> like as in. And so, you know, really we should be looking at these things together as opposed to trying to make connections across different studies. So, yeah, I definitely think it's a, you know, I definitely think it's a good thing to do. Um, and so, yeah, in terms of what you do, like in terms of a study design, is that, um, you know, you're needing to get, you know, mums in. Um, so one study that I've been involved in is called the Baby 1000 study where we are doing that. And, like, so basically it's getting people in before they are pregnant it's a bit difficult but it's people who are like i'm thinking of getting pregnant so that you can start getting samples even before and then once they do fall pregnant they usually kind of know quite early because they're they're trying like as in and then basically we're doing samples of both oral and gut through first second and third trimester so for us we're sort of just getting about three samples across that time period before baby is born and then there's follow-on samples of both mum and baby basically but yeah so we're taking you know in this case because it's a general study we're taking saliva because we're not particularly looking at a biofilm disease however as I mentioned before if you are like and so people have done it where they're interested in perio like with mums and babies like that's a whole more other thing so then they take a plaque one but basically you're needing to get both a saliva sample and a stool sample and then trying to get oral health information in conjunction with that and also gut information as well so nutritional intakes and things 
things like that. So the more metadata you can get in all those kind of sample, in all those kind of studies, the better off you are. Because everybody always asks afterwards, oh, did you look at this association? Or did you look at that? You know, so what is people's, you know, what are they eating? What are they doing? And I guess the thing too to keep in mind is particularly diet is so important for both oral and gut. Is that when I'm thinking of studies like that, is that I sort of think of in terms of diet as like obviously what we eat, but it usually comes down to like what macronutrients we have. So we want to get it down to like how much carbs are you having, how much protein, how much fat, and also to what's your calorie intake because that's going to influence things too. And so we actually have a longitudinal mouse study um, that we've just completed recently where we looked at like a range of different diets in the mice and we took oral and gut samples so we can correlate those things. But trying to get that information from humans is not impossible either and you just need really good diet inventory data. So like I'd say, you know, you want to get people in early and you want to take really good, clear, longitudinal samples um, if you're looking at prenatal to get some indication of longitudinal, and then you want to pair it with really good metadata. Right. So um, in terms of like how to measure the influence of a single factor, um, one of the questions I'm really interested in, uh, how can we actually measure the influence of a host genome? Like how can we make sure that it's actually under that single factor? Yeah. Or would there be any difficulties that you'd be expecting? Yeah, so basically, like you can do two approaches. Like as in, so one is where you use unrelated individuals and you do what's called a genome-wide association study. So that's where you have to have huge numbers of people. And then you take, you know, host genetics, um, host DNA, and then you look at the relationship between many, many different loci and the outcome measure. So in our case, it's say, for example, an oral micro study, you'd be looking at which microbial species or which microbial functions of those species are associated with certain genetic loci. But as I mentioned, it requires huge studies to actually mm. get those associations. The alternative approach is to use twins. So basically a twin model, which is what we've got with one of our studies, is that you know a classical twin model is where you compare a feature between um, identical twins, so monozygotics, and non-identical twins, which is dizygotics. And so basically anything that looks more similar between the MZ twins is going to indicate host genetic control versus something that is, you know, equally similar across both indicates shared or common environmental effects. So twin models are incredibly useful for not having to go down the, um, you know, genome-wide approach. But then once you do find, oh, there is a genetic indication here then you can go and look into that so we already know like the certain taste loci that are like important in certain microbial players and things like that so you can then kind of target your genetics to certain genes and stuff once you sort of indicated okay there's enough of a host genetic plane here because it doesn't always have a role or it doesn't always have a big role kind of thing so that's two different ways you can go about figuring out if the host is playing a role in a certain factor there's definitely a lot in, that we can learn from because for for us in undergrad level, the way of how we we can measure like say like say like one single factor or how to generate a study design is very limited, and uh, we definitely learned a lot today from you, Doctor. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Doctor Christina, for your time today. No um, worries. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you. Thanks thank so you. much, Ben.